We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Barn to Door and Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine. On this episode, we welcome Nicolette Hahn Nyman. The name might sound familiar to some of you. She's married to the pioneering California rancher Bill Nyman, for one, but you might also know her as the author of two seminal works on ethical meat production, Righteous Pork Chop and Defending Beef. Over the years, the former vegetarian and environmental attorney has become a passionate and outspoken advocate for sustainable food production and improved animal welfare. She's published pieces on those topics in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, HuffPost, and The Atlantic. And Chelsea Green has just published a new and expanded edition of Defending Beef. In this conversation, you'll hear why she believes cattle and other grazing animals can be used as tools for restoring both human health and ecological balance. Beef, Nyman argues, doesn't have to remain an environmental villain. I'm thrilled to share this interview with you today, but before that, a word from our sponsor. I want to take this moment to introduce our sponsor, Barn to Door. They're doing a new segment aimed at helping farmers, and you'll hear that later in this episode. But who are they? Barn to Door powers farmers who sell direct, helping them increase sales, access customers, and save time. They help farmers meet buyers' expectations through easy ordering and an accessible brand across online channels. Farmers use software, services, and resources from Barn to Door to manage and promote their business. The bottom line is this, farms that provide convenient buying and delivery options reach more buyers. Data show farmers can double revenue when they offer online subscriptions and direct delivery. Promote your brand, manage your orders, and keep your profits with Barn to Door, providing the capabilities and support you need to build a thriving farm direct business. Learn more at barntodoor.com forward slash tractor time. Nicolette Hahn Nyman has recently published a new and expanded version of her 2007 classic Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. And a lot has happened since 2007. In just a few short years since her book was first published, cattle have become nearly synonymous with human-caused climate change and environmental destruction. But are cattle inherently bad, or is there another side to the argument? Nyman believes that wisely managed livestock can help repair ecosystems, fight climate change, and improve human health all at the same time. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Nicolette Hahn Nyman. Nicolette, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So this book, Defending Beef, first came out seven years ago, but you're releasing a revised and expanded version. And I think this might be a good place for us to sort of set up the parameters of this conversation. You know, what, what's changed in those seven years that really required you to come out again with another book, another version of this book? Yeah, well, that's a great question because when I first wrote the book, I thought it was really timely. You know, I thought this is an issue that's an issue that's out there. People are talking about it, thinking about it. And that was true. But it turns out that the issue became sort of more topical. There was more discussion. There were more actions being taken, sort of positive and negative surrounding beef and cattle and grazing and everything in the you know subsequent years. And so I kept thinking like, geez, I kind of you know, I would love to update this book, but I, I didn't do anything about it. And then my publisher, actually, Chelsea Green, actually contacted me and said, could you redo this book and make it 
you know, up to date. And I was like, oh yes, please. You know, And I had actually begun another book and I just put that on the back burner right away because um, I so wanted to say these things, you know, with the updated research, with the updated thinking. And then, you know, initially I told the publisher, I told Chelsea Green, I said, I'll, you know, probably need about three months because I thought, you know, I want to add some additional research on the health side and I want to add some, especially climate science and soil science and, you know, newer stuff. And especially around methane, I really wanted to beef up, so to speak, that section. But what ended up happening was I began working on it and I was going through it page by page, line by line. And I came back to them and I said, actually, I need about a year. So I, I literally rewrote the book almost from scratch. I mean, there's a huge amount, obviously, that's still there from the original version, but my thinking has evolved quite a bit. I didn't realize that until I started going through the book and I wanted the, you know, the current version to reflect that evolution in my thinking. And I also think um, sort of the public conversation and understanding of all of these issues has evolved quite a bit. So I wanted it to really reflect where we are today, I think, in the conversation around, you know, sort of food and farming and sustainability and the role of animals and all that. And so between my own thinking have, having evolved and the issue having shifted quite a bit over the years, um, the book needed a lot of reworking in my view. So I did that. So it was a pretty labor intensive process of preparing it for a reissue. And I'm very proud of the new book. Quite honestly, I think it's a better book too, because I had that opportunity. You know, it's like when you write an essay and you put it on the shelf for, you know, a month or a few weeks, if you have the luxury to do that, and then you go back and you reread it and you're like, oh, wow, I, I can say this a lot better. <laughs> you know, you see things that you could do better when you have a little distance. So that happened as well. So I really, really like this new version. And I'm super happy that Chelsea Green gave me the opportunity. You know, in the seven years that have passed from the first edition of this book and in, in this revised edition, you know, there's just been almost a change in consciousness brought on by a whole host of things, including some really prominent uh, popular documentary films that came out. Um, Cowspiracy is one of them. But, you know, there have been other things like that that have come forward. You know, I think of Kiss the Ground as an example of uh, a documentary that promotes a certain kind of regenerative agriculture that includes livestock. But then you think of someone like, you know, Bill Gates coming out and saying, you know, we can't eat meat anymore. We've got to eat alternative meat. We've got to eat something else. We've got to be plant-based, et cetera. So I think in the last seven years, plant-based has become a household word that it wasn't in anyone's consciousness. You know, when your book came out, I don't think, um, you know, vegan people knew what that was, but you know, it was sort of maybe derided, but now cattle are, public enemy number one, they're causing climate change. It's, it's become um, sort of a symbol for the sort of global effort to, to address this, this sort of emergency that faces us right now. I know. And I, I totally agree with your assessment. And I think that that's exactly what I was seeing as well. On the one hand, there was more and more focus on this idea that, you know, meat is inherently problematic from not just a climate change standpoint, but from a lot of different perspectives, but certainly um, from a climate change standpoint. And therefore the solution is to get rid of the animals in our food system and to create these, you know, sort of basically processed food alternatives that are, you know, faux meats basically. And on the other hand, you know, the sort of like hopeful part of the story from my perspective is that you had documentaries like Sustainable, Kiss the Ground, Sacred Cow that are saying actually the food system 
um, to be truly ecologically vibrant and sustainable needs to be much more inter, you know, interrelated, more diverse, more complex. We need plants and animals together. We, you know, we have to, you know, have animal impact, you know, like, so that conversation was evolving a long way from where it was, you know, 10 years ago or seven years ago. And, and on the other hand, we had this, you know, sort of what I would think of as the sort of wrong solution, the oversimplified, you know, as H.L. Mencken said, you know, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution that's wrong, basically, to paraphrase him. And I think that's happening a lot, too. I mean, we, as you said, I, I think of climate change as well as, you know, a global planetary emergency. And so we want quick and easy solutions to that, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not there. They don't exist. <laughs> and the reason why I find this, the sort of quick and easy solutions, like we need to, you know, we, we should all become vegans. I find that so problematic because it's not just that I don't think that's going to solve the problem, but I think it's going to lead to a whole new host of problems. And so I feel that this argument I'm trying to make that we need an agriculture and a diet that's much more connected to, you know, our evolution as a species to our, you know, the way ecosystems work and the way, you know, we need our food system to look more like ecosystems and to be more connected with our ecosystems and our landscapes. And, you know, as Charles Massey says in Call the Reed Warbler, we need to understand the actual function of the landscape, what it's supposed to be doing in terms of its natural functions and, and work with that in harmony. You know, it's a pretty radical rethinking of agriculture that is so urgently needed. But it, those, those are complex ideas. And so it's harder and harder to make that message heard as people feel more and more of a sense of urgency and they want that quick, immediate silver bullet uh, response. But I do think I'm, you know, amid all of this din, <laughs> right, of voices, I feel a lot of hope because of a few things. One is, um, my husband, Bill Nyman, and I gave the talk at the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barns a few years ago, the keynote address there. And I, you know, there were hundreds of young people there, all in their 20s and 30s. And we talked to many of them, dozens of them. And there was not one single person there that I talked to that had grown up on a farm. Now that, that I'm not saying that's a good thing. You know, I, I want, I want young people, you know, from farms as well to be going into regenerative agriculture, but this was a really interesting phenomenon that I hadn't fully grasped until that day of young people that had already began, you know, they'd begun a career, they'd gone to college. In many cases, they were things like they were in finance and banking and all kinds of, you know, non-agricultural careers. And they were really fired up about this idea of regenerative agriculture and this idea of complex systems where you have animals, you have a diversity of crops, everything's connected and trying to work like a natural model. And this was something, you know, I'm quite confident you couldn't have found a young farmer group, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, where you had people talking about that, at least not a large number of them talking about it. So, you know, I see this new generation with this very new ethos coming into farming. I see chefs and consumers more and more concerned and interested in this idea of food from regenerative farmers. And I think people are grasping that this complexity, this reflection of nature, this role of animals, you know, they're, they're getting that that's part of it. 
And so while I'm on the one hand discouraged by some of the trends and some of the documentaries that are out there, I'm also very heartened by some of the things. So it's sort of like, you know, where is it all going to go? So that's why the, you know, defending beef was so urgent from my perspective to, to kind of get that, you know, as part of the conversation, this very lively conversation that's out there right now. Yeah. And I guess it's important also to define what you're not defending. I mean, the title of the book is not defending CAFOs. It's not defending industrial meat production. It's defending beef. And, you know, specifically it's defending a certain kind of production style, call it ecological, call it regenerative. How would you define, you know, what you're not defending? And the reason I ask that is because so often critics of maybe your argument, let's say, will lump you into the same basket as sort of the big cattle producers, right? The big meat purveyors. And you're really not coming from the same place. You're not defending the sort of industrial model. Wouldn't that be accurate to say? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to know that I was, you know, I was a biology major in college. My whole perspective is trying to understand the natural world and how it functions. And no, you know, that I've never thought it would be a good idea for, for humans to try to dominate it, you know, or erase what's there and then put our own, you know, systems in. I, I've i sort of like come from this ethos from early childhood, really from my parents, I have to say. Uh, my father was someone who always took long walks every day out in a large wooded area near our house. And what he actually walked, he was a history professor and he used to walk every day to and from work, even in the snow, because he just loved being outdoors. And I was sort of raised with that ethos from the beginning. And then I majored in biology in college and I then worked as an attorney, but then specifically as an environmental attorney for environmental organizations for several years. And my whole perspective is that humans are too disconnected from nature and our understanding of natural systems and you know the importance of them and how we, we need to work with them rather than try to sub, you know subvert them or dominate them or erase them. That's my whole perspective. And the reason I've gotten so passionate about cattle and beef and really all the grazing animals is because I'm increasingly persuaded from all the, you know, I've been living on a ranch now for the past 18 years, and I've been sort of working in this space for a long time. And more and more from things I've seen and read and people have told me and videos I've watched and just things I've seen all over the world, literally, I'm more and more persuaded that what we're, what we really need to try to do in food systems thinking is think try to understand how natural systems work and try to you know model them. They obviously will never look exactly like a natural system, but to try to understand their wisdom and their beauty and their, you know, their how they recycle everything and how they regenerate everything, how the life is the, the you know the the key. I mean, I love the way Gabe Brown says it. He says, you know, when he was part of a conventional farm, he used to think every morning, okay, what, what do I need to kill today? <laughs> you know, what insect, what weed, what, you know, what fungus, whatever. And that his whole mindset, he realized was shifting to what kind of life am I going to be seeing out there today that I haven't seen before, you know, and what kind of, um, what's going to be flourishing out there today. And, and it's so true. I just thought that was such a brilliant way of putting it. So my mindset is, has always been that one of, okay, how do we make this um, biologically flourishing environment. And unfortunately, mainstream meat production has not been in that mindset, you know, in the, at least in the industrialized world for a very long time. And I mean, I would say actually, ironically, although cattle and beef gets more attention than, you know, the other sectors generally and negative attention, 
I actually think the, you know, from having been again on dozens of farms and ranches over the last 20 years, I think the people that are raising cattle are often the ones that are the most connected to their local, you know, they know the climates and the land and the history and, you know, they know the wildlife, they know the soils because they're literally really living out there. Uh, the cattle are still basically being raised outdoors. I mean, especially they're not really, the, they're not the feedlot operators. They're the ones that are raising the cattle out on the rangeland and in the pastures. And so they're out there with their animals versus, and I've been on quite a few of these as well, the large confinement operations, you know, the animals are literally not even outside anymore. So the, the, the people that I've met on those places never talk to me about, you know, what's happening with the local wildlife or, you know, the riparian zones or things like that. There's just like a whole different lexicon, you know, that you'll encounter. So I, I believe that people that are involved in, you know, beef for the most part are pretty ecologically aware and focused. And what I think, um, I actually think there's kind of a false dichotomy between, you know, environmentalists and people advocating for the good, you know, um, planetary stewardship and the beef community, because these are people who care passionately about, about the earth and about the land. But what I think we need to do is we need to have a recognition that there's a lot that we need to do to do things better. And I would include, you know, our own ranch. I mean, we're always talking about how can we do this better? And, you know, asking ourselves that question on a daily basis. And so I think that, you know, the fact that I believe in the importance of these grazing animals as part of ecosystems and as, you know, and sort of, um, as Alan Savory says, you know, sort of having the domesticated animals be the proxies for the disappeared wild grazing animals that once covered so much of the globe. You know, if we think of it that way and we say to ourselves, okay, how do we manage these animals in such ways that they're having the kind of ecosystem impact that the, the disappeared wild grazing animals once would have had? And we start from that space, right? Then I think there's tremendous um, potential for positive ecological impacts from, from cattle. And actually, for the most part, grazing is, is not a negative impact. It's, it's being done not nearly well enough, but I think, the, to, from my perspective, the, the collective ecological impact of the large-scale monocrop that's you know literally kind of creating biological dead zones <laughs> in large portions of the upper Midwest. And um, I was driving by some a huge potato growing area in Idaho a few years ago. And I was just, it was like a moonscape. You know, it was just this gray, dusty area. You know, the, the crop wasn't growing at that time. And there was nothing there. It was lifeless, you know. And when you look at crop production that's like that, um, and I've never seen a cattle ranch look like that. You know, you always have some vegetative cover. You still have wildlife there, you know. So, I mean, I, you know, and I quote um, Wes Jackson in my book saying that essentially, the, you know, kind of like the worst managed cattle ranch is probably still better than a lot of the crop production that's out there. But I, you know, I really believe that we have to think in these bigger picture ways of ecosystems. And when we do it like that, it's so obvious that the animals are very important. You know, what you were talking about kind of reminded me of a quote that I just use all the time to the point where it's starting to get embarrassing, but it's, it's from uh, Wendell Berry, who, you know, he wrote once, once plants and animals were raised together on the same farm, which therefore either produced unmanageable surpluses of manure to be wasted 
and to pollute the water supply, nor dependent on such quantities of commercial fertilizer. The genius of American farm experts is very well demonstrated here. They can take a solution and divide it neatly into two problems. Yes. He's, it's so funny that you quote him because um, I literally was posting something on Facebook this morning and I said, uh, you know, from Wendell Berry, and I was saying um, he's the most articulate person in America today uh, in writing. And I, I would say in any category, but definitely in yeah. agriculture. I mean, he has such a beautiful way with words. Um, yeah, it's that's exactly it. I mean, we've all of this segmentation, oversimplification, and separation that sort of characterize modern agriculture has taken these complex, diverse systems that even still existed on most American farms, you know, 50 years ago, not that long ago. And that doesn't mean they were doing everything perfectly, right? But the fundamental way it was operating was not a sort of a constant producer of massive pollution problems and odors for the community and all the other things that came about when we separated and segmented and oversimplified. And, you know, I had this interesting kind of epiphany. So here's my quote that I'm always repeating it to the point where it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> um, I was watching uh, a philosopher and physicist, Fritjof Capra, speak here mm -hmm. in Berkeley a few years ago. And he said, um, nothing in nature is linear. Only humans create linear machines. In nature, everything is connected. And I just thought I had already written defending beef and I thought, my God, he just explained exactly the whole argument of defending beef. You know, it was perfect because, you know, when we, when we say we're going to produce soy here, we're going to produce wheat here, we're going to produce chickens over here. We're taking that whole notion of all this connectedness of living organisms and we're just ripping it apart and saying that no, no longer matters. And, you know, the Wendell Berry quote talks about the importance of essentially the, you know, the nutrients contained in the manure. But honestly, we've, I think, realized in recent years, so much of the research on soil health and the impacts of grazing and so forth have shown that it's a lot more than that, that, that there's a whole sort of cat, catalyzing effect that having the animals on the land does to the soils and the nutrients in the, the manure and the urine is part of it, but it goes much deeper. And we've known just, you know, humans around the globe have known for a really long time that, you know, and just the bison in the upper Midwest is such a great example of this, where you have, you know, these, this sort of large collection, this biomass on the earth that's moving through and grazing and doing the pooing and peeing and everything. But also we didn't really fully understand all of what it was, what it was doing, but we could see ecological health resulting from that impact. And so now I think the scientists are beginning to dig down in there and, you know, with their microscopes and their other, you know, very high tech equipment. And they've discovered things like glomalin, you know, which is sort of a substance that coats, you know, the root fingers, tiny little high feet down in the soil and actually facilitates the exchanges between the plant and the soil and, you know, allows the soil to get the carbon in the photosynthetic process. And it allows the plant to get the nutrients that it needs in exchange. Well, no one knew about glomalin until just a couple of decades ago when, you know, USDA soil scientists discovered it. So these are, we're starting to understand the science more now, but I think humans, you know, around the world knew for a long time that animals were an important part of, you know, healthy 
ecosystems in whatever form. So the idea that you would somehow separate all these things and simplify the production of every type of food right away, it's to me really problematic. And I think we're seeing now the effects. There's more and more recognition that all the chemicals, you know, the, the agricultural chemicals that have replaced, you know, naturally, um, natural cycles of fertility, and not just the, you know, the nutrients, but also that biological life in the soils that are stimulated by animal impact. I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to recognize as a, as a species that, you know, you can't just do this. You can't just act like these are factories. And we, food production places are not factories. They're more like ecosystems. So that's kind of the whole fundamental shift I think we need to make. We need to go away from an industrial mindset more to a kind of um, ecological ecosystem-based kind of thinking. When I think about, let's say, the American dinner plate, it's such a space of anxiety and uncertainty. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, people just don't know what to eat anymore. Uh, in the past, it was something that you received through sort of cultural wisdom. You know, your grandmother kind of taught you how to eat. Yeah. And it, you know, people were very proud about sort of the foods that sort of identified them, you know, ethnically, culturally, whatever. Now people eat for health, quote unquote. And so as a result, they're very subject to influence, maybe is a nice word. Manipulation would be the less kind word. You know, you, you think of someone, you know, on, on the one hand, you have a vegan who's arguing their viewpoint on why you should eat this way, why you should eat plant-based. And then on the other hand, you have people who say, I eat nothing but ribeyes and you should too. <laughs> and both seem maybe a little extreme for most people. You know, how, how do you sort of sort through that in your book in terms of like determining, you know, what is the answer? What is healthy? What should we be eating? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because, you know, my, my parents were both very um, health conscious as well as being interested in being outdoors. And my mother had a large garden and she used to bake and cook a lot. So I kind of had this idea from early on that the way you eat is really closely related to your health and how you feel. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. I mean, I think that was really helpful for me my whole life. And they also kind of uh, paid attention to a lot of the, you know, what was being written in the mainstream media. And so sometimes that led them astray. So I remember when my parents um, decided that we shouldn't buy butter anymore and we should just have margarine, you know, like, which I now look back and say, no, I don't actually think that was a good choice. But what's odd is this whole idea, and, it, and this did not click in my mind until reading Fred Provenza's book, Nourishment, the whole idea that we need to be told what to eat, that we don't know, that in fact, that we're idiots, basically, that we know nothing about what we should be eating. That's essentially the message we're getting right now from the, you know, nutrition experts. And, you know, I have two sisters that are both medical doctors, MDs, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very supportive and pleased that there's modern medicine out there, but I've become increasingly discouraged and kind of cynical about the level of, you know, the way diet and health is, a, is approached in sort of the modern, um, the way medicine is practiced and just, you know, sort of modern society in general, because there's this whole idea that essentially we don't know anything, um, we need to be told by experts what to eat. And that's always a kind of a moving target. And what's really gotten me kind of disillusioned with all that is because of the fact for Defending Beef, I really dug into the demographic data and looked at how Americans have eaten, not just what articles tell you, but what actually the data actually shows. And what the data actually shows is that Americans uh, 
over the last few decades in particular, really cut back on their animal fat and on their red meat and their whole egg consumption declined by pretty considerably, their butter consumption declined, their whole milk consumption plummeted. Um, so people were replacing these things with, well, in the case of whole milk, unfortunately, things like uh, juice and other sweetened beverages and then skim milk, uh, which Bill always says is like the biggest scam out there because they charge you more for it and they take the most valuable part out of it. But, you know, people made shifts in the diet based on the advice that we were being told everywhere from sort of dietary experts, from medical experts, we were being told to get, you know, cut the fats, especially the animal fats. And I really believe if you look at what's happened with American health and, you know, the health in the industrialized world, pretty much, it's very similar around the world. We, we were told that we shouldn't be eating fat, but especially not animal fats and that red meat was bad for us. And as we decline, our consumption of those things declined, you know, and in the United States, um, we increased our vegetable oil consumption by over 400% in the last few decades. So at the same time, we were replacing these, you know, sort of real whole foods uh, with, including the fats, with the products of industry in our diet. And of course, our processed food consumption rose dramatically. Our um, overall carbohydrate consumption rose dramatically. You know, anything like flour, sugar, blah, 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 that all went up a lot. And as that was happening, and animal fat and red meat in particular were declining, we were seeing a dramatic rise over the last few decades in obesity, diabetes, and other diet-related diseases, and especially sort of metabolically triggered diet-related diseases, things like heart disease, stroke, et cetera, all that, that all went up. And you know, I think Gary Taubes especially has done an, a remarkable job at sort of going through all the science on that and saying like that whole societal shift in the United States was, was catastrophic. And so for me, I agree. There's a lot. It's really fraught, you know, like what should we eat? But I love Fred Provenza's message that we have this inherent nutritional wisdom. And in fact, I can't go a single day without recommending his book, Nourishment. It's just, it's such an amazing book and he's an amazing person and his work is so remarkable. And I think he argues incredibly compellingly in his book that essentially we begin, as you said, Ben, there's a cultural beginning to our own understanding of what our body needs that begins in utero, actually. And if the mother is eating real whole foods, the knowledge of what for, for the baby that's growing inside of her will begin to develop and preferences what, you know, what, uh, Fred Provenza argues for people who haven't read it, and also the Dorito effect, which I recently read as well by Mark Schatzker, it's all about flavor being connected to nutrition. And that essentially you, like all wild animals and even domesticated animals, he shows in his research, Fred Provenza does, that you, you know, your body knows what it needs and you can actually keep yourself healthy, even um, prophylactically treat yourself for some emerging illness that you might have or treat existing illnesses that you have. And that's not to say you throw out modern medicine and you, you, know, you never go to your doctor again, but basically keeping yourself healthy, healthy on a daily basis is something that you can do if you're listening to your body and if you're teaching your body how to recognize nutrition by eating real whole foods that are simply prepared and avoiding processed foods. So, I mean, that's a very, you know, kind of poor nutshell of his wonderful book, but, but that's kind of the key point that there are these, um, you know, secondary compounds, as he says, these chemicals that we're not even, they don't even appear on a nutritional label. 
and they don't appear in any processed foods. And if you want to stay healthy, you need to eat foods that contain a sort of a biological life, essentially. And, you know, very few people are doing that nowadays. And I, I think, you know, it's a really compelling argument that if we listen to our cultural wisdom and our nutritional wisdom, we can stay healthy and we don't need to be, you know, following the USDA's latest version of the, you know, my plate or food pyramid or whatever. Um, and I'm more and more, you know, I don't trust those things very much because of what I think is so wrong. And they, and they really support processed foods, which I think is absolutely the key problem in the modern diet. Well, let's talk, talk specifically about sort of the nutritional profile of beef, you know, um, I'm thinking, you know, I've heard the phrase before, you know, you are what you eat, but also, but also what you eat is eaten, something right. like that. Yeah. I'm butchering it. But is there a difference between CAFO beef and beef that is raised on pasture? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question because it's one of the key differences between my, my two books, the, the first version of any beef and the current one. I, acknowledged that there was a difference between those things in the first version, but I became more persuaded because of things like Fred Provenza's work that actually having the animals essentially grazing, um, you know, whether it's on a rangeland or a pasture or whatever, um, is, is more important than I had realized and I had acknowledged in the original version of the book. So yes, I think there's a, a pretty persuasive um, nutritional difference between um, conventional beef and gr totally grass-fed beef. And also the other point, I mean, it's higher in a lot of nutrients. So um, there's, for example, things like calcium, um, they've been shown to be at much higher levels in totally grass-fed beef, but also you have the health of the animal has been shown to be better. So they're, they don't develop the health problems that they often do when they're you know, fed a concentrated feed and not allowed to exercise as they would be in a feedlot. And so the animal is a healthier animal when it goes to slaughter. And of course, the use of antibiotics is um, not as prevalent in beef feedlots actually as it is in other types of CAFOs, but it's still quite um, prevalent and other you know, things that are being fed to the cattle are, are just problematic. I mean, the whole sort of food feed system is problematic. So I think there's a really compelling argument for grass-fed. And I also think that, you know, again, sort of going back to nourishment and Fred Provence's work, it's, he actually makes, this is super interesting. He argues that, that having a diversified pasture, so the plant community that the animal is grazing on is really important. That is something I did not know when I wrote the first book. So I think knowing where your meat comes from is it's compelling. I mean, both from a health and nutrition standpoint and the eating quality, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's weird because I do a lot of speaking and writing about food and health and ecosystems and, you know, and we rarely talk about the enjoyment of eating the food. And for myself, this became really personal when I started eating meat again, a couple of years ago. And um, I was super surprised after 33 years of, as a vegetarian, and I was super surprised by how much I enjoyed eating it and um, actually shocked because <laughs> when I gave up meat, I was 19 years old and I didn't really care that much about meat at that time from a, you know, just a dietary enjoyment standpoint. And now I'm 54 years old and I think my body really needs the meat and really benefits from it. And I think that's probably part of the reason I'm enjoying it so much, but also I'm eating really great meat because I'm getting it from our ranch and from other, you know, farms and ranches that we know. 
And so it's really flavorful, delicious meat. And I've, um, you know, I have two young sons. I cook for them every day and I um, have just been really, really enjoying eating the meat with them and cooking it for them and for myself. We're going to hit pause on this interview for a brief segment from our sponsor, Barn to Door. Hi, this is Jackie from Barn to Door. For today's spotlight, we have Bree from Terra Firma Farm Creamery in Connecticut. She shared some insightful tips for farmers growing their brands at our direct brand conference on November 2nd. In her presentation, she discusses her farm's values and commitment to community and how that's helped her build a successful farm brand. Here's a snippet from her talk. The first week that we did home deliveries, we did about 80 deliveries that month. We are close to a thousand deliveries a month right now. So that's a huge growth. My ultimate favorite addition that Barn to Door has added is Routific. So that has saved us so much time, but it's also saved us a lot of money, which I didn't realize. Since we've used it, I have been watching our gas receipts and our delivery time. We're saving about 35% on our fuel costs and on our delivery days. I go in every morning and it takes me two minutes to print out our daily deliveries. So I get a barn to door, click and pop list. And then there's just one other button that you click and it sends it to Routific. Routific, depending on how many drivers we need for the day, makes a very efficient delivery route. The communication through Routific has saved us so much time and it integrates with all of our customers from barn to door. With Routific, they still get a text from me that's saying, hey, we dropped your order. So now our drivers don't even have to text the customers. If the van is running late, it updates the customers. They just click complete and it sends an automated message that I have done right to the customer so that they know that they've gotten their product delivered. There's days when like one driver is delivering like 60 deliveries. That's 60 customers. They're like, I still want to talk to. I still want to say, hey, thanks for your order. And I mean, it made it so easy, which is awesome. If you would like to hear more from Brie or learn more about the Direct Farm Conference, go to directfarmconference.com where you can access the full video archive. Thanks for listening. People often say that the poison is in the dose. I wonder, you know, from your perspective, do you think people eat too much meat? I mean, you you just cited some data that suggests that sort of our consumption has has gone down and we've seen a rise in sort of like lifestyle diseases and other things like that maybe associated perhaps with sugar and processed foods, et cetera. But, you know, I I grew up in Texas, which is like barbecue central, and you just ate meat at every meal. And it was just, it's a cultural thing. That's what you do. You have burgers, you have ribs, you have brisket, you have bacon. Is is there sort of in your mind, um, and I'm kind of connecting this, you know, to kind of interrupt myself, I'm connecting this also with the criticism about grass-fed beef, which is, you know, yes, it may be more nutritional or nutritionally dense, but it can't scale to meet the mm-hmm. demand of consumers, you know, and that has a lot of assumptions within it, which is like that we have to meet the current demand for uh that that's out there among consumers, but I don't know. How does, how does that strike you? You know, what, what do you think about that? Well, I talk about those issues in detail in defending beef, because those are things people bring up a lot and they, you know, that question just comes up again and again. So to go to the scalability question first, um, I've discussed this with multiple different, you know, experts in the agricultural field over the years. And I've also read a lot of reports and, you know, from think tanks that try to evaluate this, like from a global supply standpoint and how much, you know, grass is available, whatever. And I also spoke with the people at the Savory Institute years ago who had done an analysis of specifically looking at the United States and trying to figure out how much 
you know, grazing area would be available if you basically took all the animals off a of grain and put them out in, in, in range or pasture situations. And the consensus that I've come up with, you know, from all of this information, it's, is to me, it's quite credible that there is ample grazing land. And part of the reason is that number one, if you would get them off of, you know, like there was this um, analysis done in 2016 in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation, arguing that actually you could reduce the total climate change impact of agriculture if you converted all of the soy and um, grain fields in the upper Midwest and to grazing areas, you know. So one thing is you're certainly going to get rid of a large areas, large areas of monocrop, which would have many ecological benefits. But also when you have good grazing, you know, like holistically well-managed adaptive management type grazing, you are much more productive. So you produce a lot more from the land that the animals are on. So when people do a really simple kind of back of the envelope calculation and they just look at, well, here's how much grazing area we have in the country and here's how many cattle we have and here's how much people we need. It doesn't include any of those considerations. So I think that's why people are always saying, oh, there's, and plus people just assume it. They just say, well, we clearly can't do that. Well, it's not true. The people who have looked at the, the Savory Institute's analysis found that there was not just enough land to do all, all the animals in the country, the grazing animals on grass, but that you'd have a 30% surplus of land. That was their conclusion. And I think, you know, that's a, their, their analysis could be flawed as well, but I think it's certainly credible to believe that we could probably raise a comparable number of animals. And we just really need to focus on good grazing practices and making sure that we're um, doing it in the best possible way, because that makes the land a lot more productive. And it has many other ecological benefits, such as much more water being held in the soil, etc. So now the question of the first part of your question was about, are people eating too much meat? And I, and I would say, first of all, no, because I think meat is a really valuable food. And you know, for human health, and I actually um, would have agreed with that idea. You know, again, sort of like thinking of my own thinking when I was talking at the beginning of this interview about my uh, my evolution and thinking. That's something I think I've evolved in a lot because I've increasingly become convinced that we're not eating in a way that our physiology is really being supported and that we need to understand and listen to what our bodies need and. I think meat is certainly something that, you know, we should have a lot of other types of foods as well. I mean, I've actually met quite a few of the people in the carnivore um, community and it's pretty compelling the stuff that they've told me about their own personal health. Most of them did it because they were having some really glaring health issue that was going to require pretty dramatic medical intervention. And they got it under control through a carnivore type diet, which is intriguing. And I don't think it should be discounted, but I think for the long term and for most people, um, if you think about, you know, Michael Pollan says that we, as a, as a species, we used to eat, we have eaten 80,000 plus things as foods over the globe. And, you know, to me, that's the key is that we are meant to be omnivores. We're meant to eat a tremendous variety and it would vary, you know, and again, going back to the cultural point that you mentioned, our genetics and our history and our heritage would have come from these different parts of the globe that had different plants, different seasons, different animals, and different ways of eating that was kind of reflecting the region that we're from. So I think there's a really intriguing idea that we, you know, that each of us probably have somewhat different nutritional needs based on our genetics. Um, but I think overall, 
I actually don't, I, in, in my book, Righteous Pork Chop, my earlier book, I actually said that I thought people should probably eat less meat and eat better meat. And I don't really believe that anymore. I have to say, I mean, maybe some people should, um, but like, if you talk to me about the barbecue, you know, in Texaco and stuff, I'm probably thinking to myself, well, as long as they're not eating it on a bun, it's probably okay. And they're not like slopping tons of like barbecue sauce, which tends to be very high in sugar and other kinds of additives to it. But, you know, if you were just eating meat and then something green with it, and, you know, that's what I'm doing more and more with my own diet is I'm having much less bread, you know, you know, a lot fewer like chips or anything like that, a lot fewer desserts. I mean, I've worked on this for years. And then now that I've reincorporated meat, it's actually made it much easier for me because I found that for 33 years, I was kind of hungry all the time. And when I began eating meat again, I was for the first time in a very long time, really felt satiated. And so it's been so much easier for me not to overeat and not to eat sweets all the time and all the things that I was sort of struggling with for years as a vegetarian. So um, like in my case, should I eat less meat? No. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm really happy. My sons, I have a son and I have an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old. And when they want a snack, I don't really want them eating a bunch of processed um, carbohydrate snack, you know, sugary snack foods. And that's pretty much what's out there or really salty, you know, processed carbohydrates. And I've actually tried to get them to do, I mean, they eat fruit a lot as a snack, but I also encourage them to eat things like jerky, which they love. And, and it works really well. It's really filling and really satiating. And I know that it's nutritionally really dense and valuable and they're satisfied with just a small amount. So it like, you know, satiates their hunger. So that eat less meat thing is something I once believed and I don't really believe it anymore. But I also think everybody's an individual and their needs are probably different depending on what stage of life they're in, you know, depending on what gender they are, et cetera, et cetera, what, what their cultural yeah. heritage is. So I think it's a very individual um, inquiry that has to take place as well. But I don't think we should start with that assumption, you know, that we should all be eating less meat. I really do not believe that. You mentioned earlier in this interview, uh, margarine is baked meat, the new margarine ever done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's kind of how I see it because it's like, okay, butter's a problem and here's the solution. And it's like, butter is this thing that you could almost literally just make, well, you can make it yourself. You know, you go out and milk a cow, you separate it out, you shake it in the jar or whatever, um, or you, you know, you have a churn. And margarine is this very, um, you know, industrialized product that comes from a faraway large monocrop field and goes through a whole bunch of processes and then comes back to you, you know, in some unrecognizable form. Oh, this is from a corn plant, really, you know? Um, so um, we're told these, you know, these things are problems and this is the solution. And I think beef is now the problem and the fake beef burger is the solution. And to me, it's really just processed food being replaced, you know, replacing a real whole food. It's something that's beef is so, so nutrient rich and dense, and it's absolutely carbohydrate free, which is something I also didn't know for years until, you know, as a vegetarian, I didn't pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started looking at the nutritional, you know, qualities of beef and comparing it to the modern diet, I realized like, wow, when, when you reduce your meat and your animal fats, you almost automatically begin eating more processed carbohydrates because you are hungry, you are losing a lot of nutritional value and you're trying to fill yourself. And it's much harder to do that. And it takes a lot more calories to feel full when you're eating processed carbohydrates or even something like beans. 
um, you know, Diana Rogers has done a really good job of comparing um, the number of calories in beans to get a certain, you know, whatever levels of nutrients in particular protein, but she looks at other things as well. And then compare that to beef and it's so much fewer calories to get the same amount of nutrition. And so comparing hundred grams to hundred grams is often the way it's done, but actually the calories is really important. How many calories are you consuming to get the nutrition? And when you think about it that way, it explains why so many people gain so much weight as they shift away from meat and towards more pasta, more bread, more bagels, more, you know, Dorito chips. And so I think, um, you know, we, we have to get away from this idea that there's inherently a problem for your health if you're eating meat. Well, break down what these alternative meats consist of. I mean, you know, obviously every brand has its own little proprietary blend. They're using their own, you know, sort of like genetically modified yeast strain in order right. to like do to approximate blood or whatever yes. it is, yeah, um, so you know, so they're all sort of slightly different, but like, you know, what are people actually eating when they buy one of these products at the grocery store? Yeah. Well, I think one thing people should do is actually look at the ingredients label and actually the, the ingredients label, I mean, first of all, you'll notice right away that it has a lot of ingredients but you won't even fully understand how processed a food it is when you look at it. For, so for example, you just, mentioned, you just mentioned that genetically modified ingredient that approximates the appearance of blood coming out of the burger, which in, in and of itself is so absurd to me. Because like I keep thinking, you know, like the Dorito effect is it's all about how processed foods are designed to sort of trick you, trick your senses into thinking you're eating something that you're not. And increasingly, I think that's so much of what's wrong with how we're eating. You know, we're not allowing that nutritional wisdom to, to work because we're eating things that were very carefully engineered to trick our senses into thinking we're getting something that's good for our bodies. And then as the Dorito effect also says, it's like, we keep wanting to eat more and more. We're never satiated. We're never satisfied. And that's all part of the engineering of the food. So the first thing you notice when you look at these faux burgers is they have a lot of ingredients and that you won't recognize some of the ingredients in terms of what they are, you know, and again, going back to Michael Pollan, it's like this whole idea of like, make sure that you, you know, grandmother would have recognized the ingredients in anything you eat, you know, well, your grandmother's not going to recognize almost any of those. I mean, even the, you know, pea protein expeller, uh, pressed pea protein, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, what, you know, what is that? And I mean, I've seen a bunch of videos where they show how all this stuff is done and there's just a tremendous amount of processing involved. And, you know, your body again, is not going to even probably recognize most of these ingredients because there's so much processing that's gone on. And on the farming side, it's an industrial, you know, farming process. Um, but to me, it's just a processed food. It's a highly processed food. And if you think about what could be in your beef burger, I mean, it's just one ingredient and it's a real food. It's a whole food that has a tremendous amount of nutrition. Your body knows what to do with it. And, and it provides a tremendous amount of valuable protein and many other nutrients in there. And if you, especially if you get grass-fed beef, there's a lot of secondary compounds in there as well that are really valuable for health. So to compare that and say, we should not eat that and we should eat highly processed foods with unrecognizable ingredients, to me, it's just not credible. Yeah. And there's, there's also something that's very closed off about these, these food systems that produce fake meat. Um, but I think of, you know, I think of livestock, I think of heirloom seeds, and I think of something that's very open source that 
theoretically, if you want to, you can grow your own food, you can raise your own animals, you can take care of yourself to an extent. Whereas sort of these corporate industrial models really want a certain level of dependency and a certain level of profit. They want to own the patent. They want the IP on, you know, this, this, uh, fake burger. And, you know, how does something like, does, does that factor into your thinking that livestock are sort of a, a means of autonomy of independence, um, for individuals, communities, what have yes, you? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, people talk about it and I do in, in defending beef, I talk about the incredible importance for people in the developing world with animals and livestock, whether it's chicken, you know, or, you know, you have a small flock of chickens or you have your herd of goats or whatever. And I spoke, I actually spoke at a, um, a conference in Germany a few years ago and I met livestock uh, keepers from around the world. And it was quite extraordinary to realize how invaluable, you know, camels and goats and sheep and chickens were to people all over the world. And many of these people were living in regions where you absolutely cannot grow crops. And also these were people themselves or were representing people who do not own any land. So this is another incredibly interesting part about livestock that people rarely think about, is if you have livestock, they are portable, you can take them places to graze and you can move with them and you don't even have to own land. And a huge portion of the people in the developing world that are you know, surviving on livestock herds don't own any land. So this is a very interesting piece of it. But applying this whole, you know, this whole idea to you know, sort of the modern industrialized world as well, that that's something that really clicked in my mind when I started thinking about the fats, because a few years ago, I was asked to chair a panel for the Sustainable Food Trust uh, conference that was here in San Francisco called the True Cost of American Food. And it was all about the fats and the way we had, and I hadn't really thought about it that much until they asked me to chair this panel. And so then, of course, I had to learn all about it. And I was shocked, like I hadn't even thought about this. It was all about how essentially we have all these animal fats, which can be, you know, just generated in pretty much any region where you live directly from the animals, you know, whether it's chicken schmaltz or whether it's butter fat or whether it's beef fat, pork fat, lard, whatever. It's right there in your community. And it's very unprocessed, basically. It just comes directly. I mean, you may have to render it down a little bit, but like, like for example, I make my own um, animal fat in my kitchen all the time. When I have a fatty cut of meat, I just, um, cut the, you know, whatever part I'm not going to use off, or I'll just take it from the bottom of the pan, whatever. And then I roast it slow, you know, slow, low temperature, and I get all the fat off and I just pour it into jars and I just keep it and I just cook with that in my kitchen. So I make my own fats, literally. And if you contrast that, you know, with like we we're talking about a few minutes ago, margarine and how it's produced and it's produced far away. We were in this panel I was doing um, with the Sustainable Food Trust we were actually focusing on palm oil and we were looking at the impact of all of the palm plantations in Asia in particular. And it's just shocking because people have been told, okay, you can't eat lard. You can't eat schmaltz. You know, that's bad for you. So don't buy the, you know, and don't use and don't buy the fat from your local animals in your own bio region. Go destroy the, you know, the rainforests of Asia instead and get palm oil and you'll feel better about that because that's not from an animal. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, right? So this piece about the fats has something I hadn't really put into my picture until recently. And when I started thinking about it, I realized this is another example of where 
you know, we're sort of told that the local solution that we can do right here in our own region or even our own yard um, or our own farm, um, that that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. You know, you need to get this stuff from the grocery store that is from some large food conglomerate, and that's the healthier option. And that does really, to me, that corresponds with this faux burger movement. And it's really interesting if you look at the meat industry and how they have dealt with it, that whole question. A few years ago, they were kind of deriding all of the vegan alternatives to their you know, beef burgers. And then they started realizing, well, we, we actually might want to get into this ourselves. <laughs> and they created the Alt Meat Journal and they began buying up all of these, you know, vegan burger companies and they began creating their own lines. And so now it's just basically another big food product. And, you know, that's where your money is going if you're buying those things. And not to mention, I don't think it's a healthy food, but if you, you know, if you think about the chain of what you're supporting in a food system and using your dollars to try to vote for the kind of food system you want, you're just supporting a big industrial food system if you buy those faux burgers. Whereas if you buy meat and eat a you know, pork burger or a beef burger, you can literally buy the animals from, that were raised in your own community and from a farmer, almost always you can find one directly and, and buy direct, make your own and make real whole healthy food and, and real fats too. And that's a much healthier way to eat. Well, let's talk a little bit about the ethics of eating animals and animal products. Um, you mentioned early in the interview that, you know, you decided at a very young age to be vegetarian and you did that for many, many years. You know, how did your thinking about this question evolve over time? And, you know, what do you tell people now who are, you know, who are really ser- taking this, this question seriously? I mean, they really are asking, is it ethical to eat animals and animal products? And they're struggling with this because they want to do the right thing. And they're hearing, you know, kind of a nonstop torrent of information about (laughs) why they should stop eating animals. And, you know, how do you, how do you have these conversations with people? And we'll have this be the last question. So it's very personal for me because I lived as a vegetarian for over 30 years. And I, people, when I married Bill Nyman, who was, you know, a rancher and a meat company founder, people largely kind of assumed I would begin eating meat again. And in fact, I regularly encountered old friends who said, oh, if you started eating meat again, you know, a few months or a year or two after I met married Bill, and I was like, nope, still not eating meat, you know? And that surprised people. So I actually lived and worked on a ranch and was married to Bill and I for 16 years before I began eating meat. So it was something that I did think a lot about. And for me, it came down to a few things. One, I think the ethical issues around animals, for me, they're kind of different than that mainstream discussion. So I believe that, you know, all of nature functions by a kind of, you know, uh, there's that great book by um, Berndt Heinrich about um, life everlasting, which is all about how all of, all of nature is a cycle of sort of birth and life and death and decay and regeneration. And that's the whole key to how nature works, whether you're a plant or an animal or a fungi, that it's all about that regeneration and that cycle of life. That was a a wonderful book that I read quite a few years ago before I became eating meat again, a long time before I started eating meat again, but it kept, I kept thinking about that book and the ideas of it. And so I really think, you know, humans are part of nature, obviously, although we live in such a disconnected way. And if you 
think as I do that we need to be more and more connected both for our mental and physical well-being and for you know sort of how we eat and understanding our physiology and trying to actually support our physiology and what we giving our bodies what we need I think we need to think about our our history our evolution our culture as you mentioned and so to me it just increasingly made sense that as a human I wanted to be part of that natural cycle and natural system and make sure that I was um giving my body what it had evolved to be healthy with. And I realized a few years ago that I was not eating meat in spite of the fact that I believed it was the healthiest food that, you know, it's, that it's a really important part of a healthy diet. Um, you know, I never tell someone to eat meat. I don't, I don't urge that on people that are not eating it, but I, I do share my own journey. And I realized when um, I turned 50 and I started assessing my own health that I had begun to gain weight that I had, um, I had my bone density tested. This was really the moment that really convinced me. And I found that even though I'd been a runner my entire adult life, I was losing bone density pretty rapidly. And that's also connected to the loss of muscle mass. And all these things are connected together. You know, your body as a system begins to decline. You know, it's kind of sad, but we begin to kind of decay around the age 40 and especially around the age 50. Okay. So I realized I don't want to go on a diet of a bunch of pills and supplements or medications, especially medications. I'm not, you know, totally opposed to supplements, but I really didn't want to do that. And actually I had a moment at Kaiser Permanente where they said to me, oh, well, you're, you know, your cholesterol is going up a little bit. This was still when I was a vegetarian. They said, um, you should probably, you're right about that age where you should probably start taking, you know, a bunch of <laughs> pills, basically. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I was like, good God, that's the, that's your health plan for me. <laughs> you know. So I was like, okay. And going back to my cynicism about modern medicine, it was one of those moments where I was like, wow, really? That's your solution? I thought you guys were really focused on wellness and preventative care. Apparently not. Um, so. Um, I decided I wanted to make the choice to eat food every day that I thought was delicious and really supported my body, that really supported my health. And then I had to get over this idea that I wasn't going to eat animals. And what was odd was when I first started eating, I just ate some beef from our ranch. That was the first thing I ate. And I thought I would feel some anxiety about it or maybe some regret after I ate it. Like, oh, geez, I shouldn't have done that. I've gone 33 years and now I've gone, ruined that perfect track record I had. And actually it was sort of weird. It was almost the opposite. I had this sense of relief because I realized I was now eating something that I felt my body needed. So I was actually coming in conformity. You know, I was getting my values and my diet can finally in sync after many years of them being, you know, out of sync. And so, you know, to me, the ethics around animals are high. I think we have a really high standard that we should all demand and we should practice as farmers and ranchers for caring for animals. I believe they should be given good lives, lives that are worth living and that their deaths should be done very carefully and try to create an environment where there is no fear or pain. And I think every person involved in the meat industry and in farming is it's incumbent on all of us to do that to the greatest extent we possibly can. But I do not believe that our human ethical obligations um, require us to refrain from eating meat because I think it's totally natural and appropriate. And I actually increasingly believe that we are healthier humans when we are consuming animals. So we need to hold ourselves to high standards. We need to make sure we are living up to, 
you know, our responsibilities toward these animals. But I do not believe that means that we shouldn't eat meat. Well, Nicolette, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. There you have it. Go by Defending Beef, the ecological and nutritional case for meat at the Acres USA bookstore. Use coupon code NOVPOD. That's NOVPOD for 10% off on all titles. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and Barn to Door. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us at acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.